Welcome to the first episode of Andercast. It is brought to you by two UCLA Anderson full-time MBA students, Mike Chester and Parth Shah. We'll be interviewing students, faculty, alumni, and other interesting folks from around the world of business. We'll be digging into their backgrounds and getting their perspective on current events, all while looking for a little bit of inspiration to take our lives and careers to the next level and maybe even achieve nirvana in the process. Welcome to Andercast. This is Mike Chester. Our guest today is a big get for the podcast. He's the Associate Professor of Marketing at UCLA Anderson. He's a Stanford PhD in psychology. He gave me a B- minus in intro to marketing last year. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Hal Hirschfield. Hey guys, happy to be here. Sorry about the B minus, Mike. That's all right. I don't think it was a personal thing. It was not. It was definitely not. It was well earned. (laughs) Uh, So tell me, like, what have you been up to this week? Like, I have no concept of what a professor's life is like. Uh, okay, well, it, it's it's not very exciting most of the time. I sort of think of myself as like an Olympic athlete, where you guys just see the you know the real big performances, and then behind the scenes, I toil away and wake up at nine o'clock and then stop working at about one p.m. You know, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> you know, the life of a professor basically a lot of it is spent shockingly a large amount of time on email. It seems like everything is email, uh, Skype meetings, Slack, and um, and then a, a small amount of time writing, and then it's some occasional travel to give talks. So that that is basically my week right there. Yeah, that's interesting. That that's yeah. a pretty full week. It's a pretty full week. I, I have to go to uh, the Paris of the sort of East Coast tomorrow, Columbus, Ohio. To, oh wow! To give a talk, so that should be. Um, I don't know. Send pictures. I will. I will do. <laughs> it should be a little different than LA. <laughs> uh, so, how did you end up going into academia? You know, I. I basically was in, uh, when I was in college, I signed up to take a political science class thinking that was my destiny and then didn't realize that uh, it was full. This was like, I had to literally go in person and hand in like a written card. This was before like, yeah, there's like the the internet, but they just put me into a social psychology class instead of the poli sci one. I loved the class. I felt like it was, you know, the coolest thing to be able to study human behavior and predict it and change it maybe for the better. Uh, and that just kind of led me down this path and I, you know, did some research assistant stuff and that's, that's really where I started. Interesting. Interesting. So you have a really captivating presence as a professor. You prepare these three hour presentations with over a hundred slides and you just roll through it in a really confident, but funny way, almost like a great stand up comedian. <laughs> um, can you talk about a bit about your presentation style and how sure. you prepare? Sure. First off, Mike, you know, I can't change your grade, right? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I actually, you know, first of all, I really appreciate that. Um, look, it's a lot easier to be up there when I enjoy doing what I'm doing. Uh, so I've found in the past that if I don't prepare well, it's kind of a disaster and then it's unfun for everybody. And then I'm upset when I get home and then it's like not fun to be in the house. So it has like all these ripple effects, you know? So it's like, the world is a much better place if I just prepare a little better. So, you know, I used to, when I first started teaching, I used to actually sit there with every slide and, and practice what I wanted to say, like probably about three times total, which would take forever. You know, so it's like I'd finish one lecture and then go home and like spend the next 12 hours just preparing the next, out. yeah, script it all out. I think it's honestly the only way to do this sort of thing for me, at least some people are like much faster on their feet and they can just go with it. I realize that I can like be more present and respond to people better if I like 
kind of am more automated in what I want to say. So that's that's kind of how that that's how I also prepare like talks I give too. It's just like it, it, it takes more time up front, but then I think the results much better. So yeah, that that's my that's my process. No, that that makes sense. Speaking of stand-up comedy, I, I saw that you recently did a show with uh, Moshe Kasher and Natasha Leggero at uh, UCB Franklin. How did that come about? Uh, yeah, that was a blast. That podcast is going to be online in about a month, I think. Um, they were way funnier than me. Uh, I was there as the expert and they were there as the comedians. And at one point I made a joke and they laughed and I said, hey, and you guys thought I was the expert and not the comedian. And Moshe Kasher turned to me deadpan and said, no, no, no we know you're the expert and not the comedian. <laughs> um, but I have a buddy who's a marketing professor at University of Colorado who studies humor. And he's become friends with all of these LA comedians, one of whom is this guy, Shane Mouse, who, study, who, who does this comedy bit on psychedelics. And he had me on his podcast, not about psychedelics per se, but other <laughs> stuff. And, um, and he's friends with Moshe Kasher. And that, that's the connection. So it actually all comes back to another professor Oh, wow. To be honest, which is kind of funny. When I walked into the UCB, the person working behind the door said, oh, you must be the professor. I was told to look for someone who looked anxious and kind of uptight. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more about the research you've done at UCLA. The best way to capture my research is probably, I guess, the question I ask, which is essentially, how do you get people to do the things that they say that they want to do? So, you know, a lot of my work is, you know, how do you get people to save more or eat healthier or make more ethical decisions? But I never, I never try to start by saying like, oh, everybody should be doing more of this, you know, because yeah. that feels a little paternalistic. It's more like we have this issue where so many people say, I want to be saving more. I want to be spending less or I want to be eating healthier, going to the gym more, etc. cetera. Uh, but they don't do it, you know? And so... And I, I'm I'm guilty of this too. Yeah, I was gonna say, like, do you are you just like the pinnacle of of all this? Oh this god, point? no. There's there's this concept called me search, which basically is like people study the things that they're not very good at. <laughs> uh, and so it's like just occurred to me recently how much how much how much I need to get better at like reining in certain spending. You know, like yeah. I like I don't make many big ticket purchases in a month. But it's like every day that I go downstairs and grab like, oh, just another granola bar and a latte and this and that. It's like you start looking, oh, this this adds up over time, you know, so. Now, I saw online that you've done some recent research on how our moods impact our entertainment choices. Yeah. That sounds really interesting. Can you talk about that for a little bit? Sure. So, yeah, I have this project with um, Adam Alter. He's a professor at NYU where we basically looked at mood in like a really broad level way. So not like your day-to-day mood, but looking at societies and, and really like cultural shifts in mood, we, we, we um, tag that to the economy. So we, we sort of make this assumption that when things are not going well, people might generally speaking be in like a worse mood. When things are going better, they might be generally speaking in a better mood. There's, there's issues with that, of course. You know, there, there's days when the economy might not be good, but but you might have had a great day, right? But overall, we actually see these trends. There's some fascinating data out there where other researchers have analyzed Twitter data and, and Dow Jones industrial returns. And you can look and you see days when the stock market, as indexed by the Dow Jones, is down, you see more negative expressions on Twitter. You know, And you can basically look at this for hundreds of thousands, millions of people. 
and that's do an assessment of mood, right? What are the things I say? You know, what's the way I say it? And that actually is like a good sort of indicator of how people are feeling. So there is this first off link between what the economy is doing and our moods. And then from there, we are sort of saying, what does that lend itself to in sort of big macro level purchases of entertainment? So things like, you know, what types of movies are popular? What types of songs are popular? What types of books do people buy? Um, And so we code those things for essentially, are they more kind of light and airy and happy-go-lucky, or are they a little bit, you know, darker and introspective, you know? And so it probably doesn't take long to think of examples of these sorts of things, right? You You can think about, you know, your everyday pop song in a major key versus something that's a little bit more, you know, reflective, you know, a little darker, a little more minor key, right? Yeah. Which ones of those rise to the top of the billboard charts? And are those trends linked to, you know, trends in the economy? And what we found throughout our research is that there's this kind of um, almost like an opposite effect. So when things are, when things are not very good in the economy, uh, we actually see the more happy-go-lucky, lighter things rise to the top. Interesting. So people are looking for like a distraction. That's what we think. Yeah, exactly. The, now, occasionally we saw some evidence that you almost see it the opposite way too, that when things are good, people are more open to the sort of darker, more introspective trends. That, that I think more research needs to be done on because we haven't seen that sort of consistently across all of our data sets. But, you know, we, we went into it actually in an argument because – or not an argument, but a debate – where I actually thought what would happen is that people would sort of uh, almost, you know, reflect back the, the mood, right? So, yeah. like, if things were bad, then I'd be going towards the dark, you know, Elliot Smith sad music. Yeah. And things are good. Now I'm happy-go-lucky. Adam, my co-author, said, no, I think it's the opposite. I think that people want sort of an escape valve when things are bad. And then, you know, maybe they're more open to sort of exploring darker themes when things are good. Just try to balance things out a little try bit. Try to balance things out. Now, this is, again, this is on a macro level, right? So it may be the case that day-to-day, if you're having a, a bad day, okay, you're going to sit in your room and listen to, like, deep, dark indie. Uh, and if things are good, now you're ready to, like, throw on the, like, 90s, you know, hip-hop or something like that, right? We were looking at this on a big macro level trend. Based on your research, can money buy happiness? Wow, what a question. Uh, I would say based on some other people's research, some of which I've contributed to, but mostly other people, money can buy happiness if you spend it the right way. If you think money is going to buy happiness by buying a faster, nicer car and a bigger house and nicer clothes, then you're fucking right. No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) uh, (laughs) If you think money is going to buy happiness through nicer material things, the evidence out there suggests that's probably not the case, uh, unless unless you treat those material things sort of like experiences. So if you can really eke out enjoyment from them over a long period of time and see novel aspects of them every day, that could be good for happiness. The sort of standard research finding or the classic research finding is that when you link money to material purchases and that's how you spend it, it gives you sort of fleeting happiness. It's exciting to get that thing, but after a little while, it, it fades to the background. I'm saying this fully aware that right now my wife and I are about to do a uh, home remodel. And, and I keep finding myself thinking, I'll be so much happier when 
we can finally have a nicer looking bathroom and kitchen and the light fixture works. And I realize that that's probably wrong. But that I feel like that could be an experience too, though, right? Yes. Because you get to like have that for a long period of time. That's the hope. And that, but the, but the the key there is that you have to keep going back to it, not let it go into the background, right? So you know, I think it's really easy with sort of static purchases that is things that don't change for them to just become for for you to become adapted to those things, and then. Over time, you stop thinking about them. They don't give you that same sort of initial, we'd call it hedonic bump, you know, like a emotional buzz because you've gotten used to it. Now you're looking for the next fix, if you will. So you, you would say vacations rather than clothes. Yeah, well, you do need clothes, right? Depending <laughs> on where you're going, you know, but yeah, you know, but, but again, it, you know, it's, I, I think some of the misinterpretation of some of this research is that it has to be all or none. Somehow the happiest person is going to be the person who only buys experiential things, right? And that's, you know, there's, there's got to be room in there somewhere for some of these material purchases, especially if you can start thinking about them in more experiential ways. So I've been noticing recently how whenever I get those Wall Street Journal or New York Times news alerts on my phone, it's, it's clearly personalized based on whatever data they have on me. So, yeah. for example, I'll get an alert about anything that's MBA related. Um, what are your thoughts on the personalization of news? Yeah, this is a great question. I mean, I I actually haven't researched that, uh, but what you know, what I think we're seeing a trend toward, and this is not just in in the marketing of products, but also the marketing of um, sort of behavioral nudges, is more of this individualization or personalization of messages, right? So, you know, step one, call it fifteen twenty years ago, was to say, hey if we kind of get these messages out to people, then they're going to change their behavior, right? So if we can like reach them more readily, you know, through the internet, through mobile, et cetera, this is going to be great. Step two is to say, you know, and this is a basic marketing insight, right? Not every message works the same for every person, right? And so the the key in my mind is that the personalization is going to work to the extent that it's really good. In other words, to the extent that it actually is really personalized because if it's just sort of sort of there, like, okay, it knows that you read the sports page and, you know, somehow something about your other online behavior su- suggests you're an NBA fan. If it just goes sort of and stops there, you're going to become used to it over time. You're like, yeah, I get it. They're targeting me with an NBA ad because I like basketball, right? But if they can somehow figure out how to get in there in a, in a more individualized way and less frequently – that's going to be the thing that kicks off like real, um, you know, whether it's purchase behavior or click through or whatever it is. Right. Um, you know, I see this with some of the ads that are shown to me on Instagram, you know, yeah. it's like some of them I scroll right by because it seems like I've seen them a million times before I've become adapted to them. They don't really spark anything, you know? Yeah. Okay. I'm a guy of this age. It doesn't really affect me to see like another ad for like balding pills. You know? <laughs> But then I've occasionally and much more infrequently seen something about like being a new parent. And it's like, whoa, okay, yeah, like that's that feels like much more relevant to me right now, you know? And and then I, I pay attention more. Now that's just a anecdotal observation. But. Yeah. But sometimes it like makes me turn the other way too though. Like it's like you, you'll see, see an ad come up for something that like you obviously were just like Googling yes. or searching yeah. and I'm just like, that freaks me out. I think there's like a... 
uncanny valley. You know what I mean? Where there's some stuff that's like too far away and there's some stuff that's like, that's just right. But then there's somewhere in between where you're like, this is freaking me out. It's like too close to, yeah. it's too close to what I've just been looking at online. I don't like them knowing this much about me. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. Did you watch the Super Bowl? Of course. Not yeah. the most exciting game. Not not even remotely, yeah. I think you're a Patriots fan, right? Yeah, well, I'm a I'm a Red Sox fan uh for baseball and I I my my dad's from Boston, so uh some of that's been passed down, but I've just never been like a huge NFL fan. So mm-hmm. I kind of sat there secretly rooting for the Pats because of sort of family considerations, but I would say, you know, if if the Rams had won, you know, how often do you get to have a local team win? Yeah, you know, that would have been pretty right? cool. Plus, I just rooted for the Red Sox when they beat the Dodgers. So I felt like, you know, come on, at some point I've got to, you know, <laughs> own up to being an Angelino here, right? Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to get your take on Super Bowl ads. Yeah. Do you think they're worth the money? Oh, wow. Well, let me first say this. Uh, the trend that we've seen over the last probably about, oh, seven or eight years is that a Super Bowl ad is much more than the 30-second spot during the Super Bowl, right? So now, what do you see? You see them come out a couple weeks beforehand, and they get passed around online before they finally air. So yeah, you're spending a lot of money to get them in that 30-second spot, but the sort of aura of having a Super Bowl ad label attached to that ad just gives that much more attention to it. So I'm not talking about the quantitative numbers here because, frankly, I don't know them. (laughs) But the exposure is just unlike anything else you can get out there. Uh, And it's before, during, and after the Super Bowl. Whereas, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it was just the ad was there. People were talking about it the next day and then it's gone. But now with, you know, with YouTube and social media, you can share these for so long that I think it changes the level of exposure and investment. Now... If you only have enough in your ad budget for one Super Bowl ad, is it worth it to blow it all on that versus like many other ads that are targeted? Well, that's a question I don't know. Like launch a new brand just based on a Super Bowl ad. You would go with something that's already existing. Look, man, I'm a I'm a professor, so I'm probably a little more risk averse than your average entrepreneur. You know, Uh, that seems like a big risk to me because it's like one you know one shot or nothing. No, then again spend a lot less and you get it out there in many more forums, but maybe not as many of the right eyeballs. I don't know. This is, this is the big question. What about sports sponsorships or stadium naming rights? You think those are worth it? Uh, I, w- I would think again, this is a case where if done correctly, I think it is worth it. Right? So the real issue in marketing in my mind is not whether you get the most eyeballs on the product or brand or whatever, but whether you get the right eyeballs on it. And if you can reason that the people who are going to Dodger Stadium are going to be more likely to purchase X, Y, and Z product, and that's a good place for it, even though it's really expensive to put a billboard up there or you know, or some sort of sponsorship, it, it, it could be targeted at the right eyeballs. You know, Buying a stadium, though, like UCLA Health sponsors the the Lakers uh, the farm training, the training for yeah. Um, yeah, and I'm I'm quite curious about that one because that's a big investment, and is it really going to be the case that all the people that go to the you know 
the training facility there are going to be now more likely to switch their healthcare provider. Yeah. As it's, it's a question, you know? Yeah. That's, that's an interesting one. feels like you, you were probably aware of UCLA health already. Yeah. And look, some of this may not be to raise awareness, but just to kind of like keep it fresh in your mind, you know? And so certainly when you name a stadium, you're keeping that brand pretty well active in a lot of people's minds, right? The research on that, though, I would imagine is real hard to come by because you'd have to, how would you do that? You'd have to effectively say, you know, prior to naming the stadium, our sales were this. And now because we've named the stadium, they're that. And you'd have to look at, you know, regional effects. You know, it's, it's a difficult sort of quantitative question to address. Yeah, that would be a tough one to measure. Yeah. Are you a Netflix guy? Yes. What do you think about Netflix raising their prices $2? Um, this may be my coastal elitism, but do you think anyone is going to cancel their Netflix over that increase? Like, I, I feel like they, like they're not losing anybody. It's like they've almost like increased their revenue by twenty percent just automatically. Yeah, I, I, I would imagine there's going to be somebody that drops out of it. It's, it is, you know, it's really hard to think that two dollars a month is going to be the thing that sends somebody packing. Now, there's obviously different income brackets, and that's twenty four dollars a year. And you know, if your budget is tight, twenty four dollars a year could could be something that would make you change your your behaviors, right? Uh, my my thinking though is that most people who subscribe to Netflix are either doing so in conjunction with a real cable package, or it's the alternative. And so, even if it's two dollars more, and you've cut the cord, it's still a lot cheaper than if you subscribe to a traditional cable package, right? Yeah. Uh, but it is, I think you're absolutely right. Especially when was the last time that they increased prices? Had to be a few years ago. <clears throat> I think it was even more than that. Yeah. So, it, you know, it seems like it's time. If you're Hulu, what would you do? I, I saw that Hulu lowered their prices. What do you think about that? I'm curious how, what the long-term ramifications of that are going to be. Maybe they got a couple people to jump ship. Uh, I mean, more than a couple, right? But, but then things will even out. And their revenue is going to be low, yeah. right? And, you know, to, this also boils down to me to, to the content that are, that's provided, right? This is, you know, the arms race for content now at these different, um, you know, these different packages, right? Where it's Netflix sort of, you know, to me, it's uncontested that they have the best content out there. And it could be that Hulu uh, and Amazon Prime and some of the other ones have some specific show that a lot of people want to watch. Yeah. I don't know if that's going to be enough to get people to like, jump ship and then not subscribe to Netflix and miss out on whatever else is on there. You know? If you were graduating with an MBA right now, what would be your dream job? Oh, I actually want to go into some sort of consulting field, but where I can, you know, do consulting with like sort of behavior change type of uh, outfits. So in other words, trying to help organizations figure out how best to, uh, change their employee behavior for the better. You know, this is to some extent the consulting that I do do. So it would be like more of that, I suppose. Yeah. But I think that would be really exciting. And if not that, then I'd want to work at like a cutting edge ad firm, marketing firm, but, but where I could work like, you know, nine to five <laughs> and not be stressed, which I think doesn't exist. So. <laughs> If you were president and could pass any legislation through Congress, what issues would you focus on? Oh, wow. Um, I, that, wow. Hmm. 
That's a great question, uh, and not one I've spent a lot of time thinking about, which which hopefully is a good sign. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, because a lot of my research focuses on retirement saving, I'd probably want to enact something that makes saving automatic at a national level. Well, I, I really appreciate you coming by to chat. I hope this wasn't too painful for you. It was not as painful as your B minus was to get. Out. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future guests, shoot us an email at andercastla at gmail.com.